In fact, the majority of our scriptures today are going to be in Galatians, the fifth chapter, on into Galatians, the sixth chapter, and then also in the third and the fourth chapters of the book of James. So our study will be a little more expository in nature today, and I'm uh, looking forward to that, very excited about that. This morning we'll be completing a mini-series I've been doing on the nature and work of the Holy Spirit. We talked about in part one the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, the purpose of those gifts and inspiring and confirming the completed will and revelation of God. Those gifts are received by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Those apostles are no longer with us today. We shouldn't expect those gifts, nor do we need those gifts today. We have all things that pertain to life and godliness in this book. A lot of misconceptions, hopefully, we cleared up in part one. Part two, we talked about the Spirit's work in redemption and convicting and converting the sinner. Just how does the Spirit work to do that? Well, we find this consistent pattern. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Humans teaching humans. But there's not a direct operation of the Spirit separate and apart from the Word, but the sword of the Spirit, the instrument, the agency the Spirit uses in convicting and converting the sinner is the Word of God. Contrary to doctrines of Calvinism that have been so influential today. And so hopefully we cleared up many of those misconceptions. And this morning we want to transition into talking about how the Spirit works after conversion with the Christian and sanctifying the saint. A lot of misconceptions about that. Just how does the Spirit do that? We'll be talking about the fruit of the Spirit, being spiritual, living the spiritual life. I was a little concerned when I saw the sermon series last month covered six of the nine fruit of the Spirit, but then as I thought of it, I realized this was actually going to be beneficial. I could be more brief in my comments regarding the characteristics and qualities of the fruit of the Spirit, and we could spend more time maybe tying everything together, talking about what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What prevents us from being led by the Spirit? What prevents us from bearing the fruit of the Spirit and living the spiritual life? And then what will allow us To live such a life. That's what we want to talk about for a little while this morning. Galatians chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted." Now, there are a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be spiritual. People talk about this person so spiritual, or maybe even non-Christians. This this Eastern thought, or New Age thought, or yoga, or meditation. We'll talk about, oh, that's just so spiritual. 
Well, not in the sense the Bible defines being spiritual. In the Bible, there's a very clear and definite meaning of what it means to be spiritual. We talk about those we see in India, and we go to India and we see Hindus. We talk about people say they're just so spiritual. Well, they might be religious, might be devout adherence to their religion, but they're not spiritual in the sense that the Bible defines what it means to be spiritual, but it means to be led by the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit in our life. They might be religious. Paul told the Athenians, Acts 17, you're very superstitious, you're very religious, but you're not spiritual. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to live the spiritual life? How does the Spirit work to sanctify the saint? Because as we look around us, it's very evident that there are a lot of people that aren't living the spiritual life. Prisons are full of such people, but not just the prisons, maybe even sometimes churches. Maybe as we look into the mirror ourselves, maybe it's our own home and in our own life. Are we bearing the fruit of the Spirit? As we look at this list of the works of the flesh contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit that we just read in Galatians chapter 5, you can correlate all these different works of the flesh with their opposite fruit of the Spirit. Adultery, fornication, sexual immorality. You could tie that over to temperance, self-control, love, etc. And Paul says that if you do the works of the flesh, if you practice those things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Practice means I keep on doing it. It's habitual. It's not I do these every once in a while or I make a mistake and I repent of it, that I'm losing my salvation. But if I practice those things, if I refuse to repent and change, I won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty big deal. Reminds me of a similar list Peter gives in 2 Peter 1. The Christian graces add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge temperance. He says if you do these things, if these things be in you and abound, you'll never be barren nor unfruitful in the Lord. That's what we're talking about this morning. You'll never fall. And so as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, it's not surprising that love is at the top of the list. Jesus said that's the greatest commands. In fact, in the verses prior to where we picked up in Galatians 5, Paul talks about love. He said it's the fulfilling of the law. It's all summarized in this, love for God and love for our fellow man. And it's love the way the Bible defines it. Not the way Hollywood or the world defines it as something that we have no choice in the matter. It's up and down. We fall into and out of love. That's not the concept of love that's presented in the Bible. Thank goodness that's not the way God loves us. Love is a decision. Love is a choice. It's very eye-opening and, and very motivating. When I discovered the Greek word agape and, and studied what agape love means and how the Bible defines love in the Bible, love is a cross. Love is a sacrifice. It's that decision that allows us to love our enemy. That wouldn't be possible if it was about rainbows and butterflies and hearts and feelings. But it's possible if I can choose to do what's right, regardless of if that's reciprocated or not. I'm going to tell you, love is the, is the motivation of the Christian life. It's a principle by which one lives. That's why love is patient. Love is kind, 1 Corinthians 13. It's a command addressed to our will, which means we have a choice. And if we don't have a love for God and a love for our fellow man, I submit to you that we will not produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We will produce the works of the flesh unless we're motivated by love. Next, he says we have joy. That comes from having this relationship with God. Jesus said it's a byproduct of righteous living. When we do what's right, we find purpose and meaning in our lives, and we know that we're living right. Not that we're perfect, but we have joy in that. 
A joy that transcends present circumstances because it's based on spiritual realities. Our joy is not in this world. As Solomon learned in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. Those things that rob us of our joy and disturb our peace. And we have joy. And that allows us to have peace with God, peace with others, peace within. That peace that passes understanding, Paul talks about in Philippians 4. In that context, he connects it to being content. We have peace. And then I believe those things, as all this is interconnected and builds upon each other, because we have love, joy, peace in our hearts, it allows us to be long-suffering towards others as God has been towards us. As we live with this awareness of the patience and mercy and grace and forgiveness of God that manifests itself in me being long-suffering towards other people. That means I'm not short-tempered. I'm long-tempered because I'm living the spiritual life. Gentleness and goodness that are connected. Kindness. Following the golden rule. Paul says, overcoming evil with good. Faith. That's not just faith in God, faith in the Bible, faith in Jesus. But if you look at the word here, it's more than that. James says, the devils believe and tremble. Faith without works is dead. But it's a faith that's seen in the life that I live. Faithfulness. That's the concept presented here. I'm living a life, I'm trustworthy, I'm dependable. I'm living a life of fidelity and integrity. I'm a good steward. I can be relied upon as a good steward of the blessings of God because I'm living the spiritual life. Meekness. Just like peace, one of the the Beatitudes. I submit to you that people who are living the spiritual life, people who are the most spiritual, people who are bearing the most fruit of the Spirit, my observation, my conviction is that they are people of meekness. Jesus described himself as meek and lowly. If it's pride and ego that causes us to produce the works of the flesh in our life, in our relationship with God and our interaction with other people, I submit to you that the opposite of that, meekness and humility, is what's going to allow us to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And finally, self-control. So fundamental, so important in all of this. Inner restraint to outward compulsion. How? Well, we read... Verse 16, verse 24, we crucify the flesh. We crucify our own desires. And when we do that, we can begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Now, we might not manifest all of these characteristics perfectly every day of our life. But overall, they ought to be characteristic of who we are. Fruit reveals what's within. It's a natural process of inner life. And so we're going to talk now about what it means to be full of the Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit in this way? A lot of misconceptions about that. We talked in part one. Sometimes, contextually, it meant to have the gifts of the Spirit that we should not expect to receive today. They were full of the Spirit in that sense. Inspiration and confirming miracles. There's another sense in which we can be full of the Spirit through the Word of God. Colossians 3, Ephesians chapter 5. John the Baptist, talked. it says he was full of the Spirit, yet we don't read of him performing any miracles. So we can be full of the Spirit in that sense. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? A lot of misconceptions about that, again, due to Calvinism. This direct operation, apart from the Word, that God's talking to me, leading me, it's very convenient, really hard to study that book and find answers that maybe I don't want, and I can be led to go where I want to go and do what I want to do and call that the leading of the Spirit. 
That's the concept that's presented today, that the Spirit's leading me in such a way. There's a story about a lady who was going to let the Spirit guide her in every choice she made. Every day, what time she would get up, what sock to put on first, what shoe to put on first, what to eat, etc., etc. You know what I think happens? You want to know what I think's going on? She wanted to sleep in. So the Spirit let her sleep to 8 or 9 (laughs) o'clock. And then as she laid there and she reflected upon her to-do list, all the things she needed to accomplish that day, her spirit, or her, her conscience began to speak to her, and she began to be convicted of laziness. And she said, I need to get up. It wasn't the spirit. That's our flesh. It's our lust. People talk about God putting it on their heart, speaking to them apart from the Word of God. I want to tell you, if if we subordinate the Word of God to our feelings and our desires, we should not be surprised when we're deceived by the devil. In fact, we're promised that. 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul said, If you don't receive a love for the truth, God will send you a strong delusion, and you'll believe a lie. It's how charlatans on TV come on and say, God told me to tell you to do what I say. How convenient. The Spirit led me to tell you to send me $100. You know, if the Spirit led us in that way, every choice that we make, apart from the Word of God, that He guides us in some mysterious way, wouldn't every bad decision we make be the Spirit's fault? One of the problems of Calvinism. I didn't do it. Devil didn't make me do it. You made me do it. God made me do it. The Spirit made me do it. Is that how it works? Different groups of people all claiming to be led by the Spirit to do different things, contradicting one another, contradicting what the Spirit has revealed in the Word of God. Is that how the Spirit works? Is God the author of confusion? What we end up doing is we end up giving a place of authority to our emotions and our feelings and our desires that we should have gave to the Word of God. Following your impulse is not trusting God. (laughs) There's a definite difference. In Romans 8, as Paul talks about being led, not according to our flesh, but according to the Spirit, how? How are we led by the Spirit of God? Verse 13, you through the Spirit mortify or kill the deeds of the body. Very opposite of following our heart. Last thing the Bible says you need to follow is your heart. It's unreliable. It's deceitful. Following our heart and our emotions and our desires, our feelings, our flesh. He said, being led by the Spirit is the exact opposite of that. You kill the deeds of the flesh, and you're led by the Spirit of God through the Word. Mark chapter 4, in the parable of the sower, Jesus said, The sower sows the Word. The seed of the kingdom is the Word of God. That what contains life, allows for life. What allows for germination is the Word of God. And it's what produces the fruit. It's what allows people to bring forth fruit. So in this sense, there's no difference between the fruit of the Spirit... In fruit that's produced by the Word of God, it's the same thing. It's our response to the Spirit's teaching in the Word of God. That's where how the fruit is produced. Now, that might not be exciting enough for some or mystical enough for some. It might be more exciting if that was a miraculous production of fruit. But Paul made it very clear in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit consists of moral qualities. And if that's the case, then it's actions that we take. It's choices that we make. It's a life that we live. Something that we do. Galatians 5.25 talks about this life in Christ is like walking this line. As directed and led by the Spirit and the Word of God, that line, that standard, is the Word of God. And so every time I follow the teachings of the Spirit and the Word of God, I'm being led by the Spirit. Every time I resist the teachings of the Spirit and the Word of God, I'm not. I'm refusing to be led by the Spirit. 
Every time I follow and implement the golden rule in my life is a case where I'm being led by the Spirit because the Spirit revealed that rule. If I'm led by the Spirit, I'm going to pray. I'm going to study. I'm going to assemble. I'm going to evangelize. I'm going to serve, etc., 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 because that's what the Spirit has led me to do. I'm going to walk in line and in step with the Spirit through the Word of God. So what inhibits this fruit production? What inhibits growth? What prevents us from being spiritual and living the spiritual life? Obviously, the works of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5, prevent us from that. But I think going back to the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives us a summary of the main causes of things that prevent us from living a spiritual life, from bringing forth that abundant fruit. Verse 19, he talks about thorny ground, those who because of the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, Entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Those are the things that prevent us from being fruitful, from living the spiritual life. Self, selfishness and worldliness. That's the cause. And it's interesting as we go to the book of James, and James outlines what prevents and what allows us to live the spiritual life as he talks about the causes of things that prevent us from living the spiritual life, he said the exact same thing that Jesus said in the parable of the sower. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What produces the works of the flesh? When you look at that list of terrible things, why do I treat God that way? Why do I treat other people that way? Because I'm being selfish. Virtually every bad decision I've made in my life, I can tie back to pride and selfishness. I'm self-centered. It's the 2-4-D, the roundup of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's the fertilizer of the works of the flesh. He continues in James chapter 4, next chapter, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among, among you? Come they not hence even of your lust, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war... Yet you have not because ye ask not. You ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. What's the problem? Your desires, your lust. The word for desire, the Greek word hedonist, where we get the word and the concept of hedonism. And that's simply this philosophy of doing whatever brings you pleasure, following your heart, doing what makes you happy at the expense of everybody else's happiness. That's hedonism. That's the problem. Works of the flesh are produced because I'm focused on self instead of focused on God and focused on other people. I have this worldview that the world revolves around me. And then I become very unfulfilled and unhappy. My life becomes chaotic. My life is conflicted because my life is off-centered, because my life is self-centered. And it produces the works of the flesh. It produces this conflict that James talks about. Every conflict, whether in the church 
whether in the home, in marriage, all the way escalating up to world wars, are the result of this same problem. All the lives that have been destroyed or impacted by fighting and war, just a waste. Why? Because somebody wanted what they didn't have. Selfishness. And he continues in verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Worldliness. And it's hard to distinguish between selfishness and worldliness. Show me someone who's selfish, I'll show you someone who's worldly. Show me someone who's worldly, I'll show you someone who's selfish. They go hand in hand. He said, if you're on friendly terms with the world, you're on unfriendly terms with God. I want to tell you, that is not where you want to be. Never turns out good. God always wins. The word for love, when it talks about not loving the world, something that's forbidden, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The word for love there is not agape. Often the word is philia. Brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's this warm affection, this common interest we share with the brother. Why in the world would we love the world in that way for a Christian? If we're living the spiritual life. You know, it's interesting. James talks about in James 4 verses 1 through 3. talks about you ask for the wrong things. Those who claim to be led by the Spirit often talk about all the carnal benefits they're reaping, right? Health and wealth. Prosperity gospel. That's all God cares about is for me to have material things. I'm led by the Spirit because I'm so faithful. I'm getting all this money. That's the epitome of what James talked about. You're asking for the wrong things. Listen, selfish, worldly petitions are fruitless petitions. And self-centeredness and worldliness prevent us from living the spiritual life. So James then talks about what stimulates the fruit production, what will allow us to live the spiritual life. James chapter 4, verse 6, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. And then as he outlines the things that we're going to talk about that allow us to live the spiritual life... He bookends that, the beginning and end, verse 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. It starts and it ends with humility. And that's not surprising. Because if I'm going to seek a solution to a problem, I have to first acknowledge and recognize I have a problem. And that requires humility. That I'll be humble enough to recognize there are works of the flesh in my life and I need to make some changes to walk in step with the Spirit. There's room for improvement to produce more fruit and abundant fruit in my life. And that requires a great deal of humility that I see myself before God the way God sees me. And I see others before God the way God sees them. And that's humbling. And that's motivating. And that's what allows us to do what James tells us we got to do next. You've got to submit. And that requires humility. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Throughout the Bible, when you find the word submission, it's almost every time connected to obedience. And we don't like that. <laughs> So I don't like to submit. Americans living in Texas, we don't like to submit. Get on Facebook of, of Christians in the church. It's disturbing. They don't want to submit to anybody. That's not a good quality. That's not a quality that's going to let us live the spiritual life if we refuse to submit to authority. We don't like that from a young age. My children, who are normally fairly easy, fairly compliant, but they sure have their moments. They test the boundaries. They test the authority, often at bedtime. We'll ask to read books, and specifically, they'll often ask to read Bible stories because they know we have a hard time saying no to that, and that prolongs the inevitable. And so we'll read all these books. 
I remember a come to Jesus meeting I had with Tyson a few months ago where there were a pile of books in the floor right by the cabinet the books go in. And I told him, hurry up and put the books up. It's time for bed. And he didn't want to do that. And he whined and he complained. And he began to make excuses. I can't carry all those books. And that's when the fruit of, the, of temperance was being inhibited. I was having a really hard time explaining to a three-year-old, you don't have to carry those books. They're sitting right by the cabinet. You need to put the books in the cabinet. You don't have to carry those books. And it was very aggravating, and he just refused. He dug in, and it's those moments you're just going, really? That's how this is going to go down? You're really going to dig in about this? So dumb. But it's not just children who act that way, right? The case of my boys, they get it from their mom, right? We're like that, and I think God sometimes is like, I'm dealing with a three-year-old. We're stubborn. We don't want to submit. You know, that's why, you know, that's a big deal. That's a heart problem. They don't learn to submit to me and my authority. They're not going to submit to their ultimate authority. They're not going to submit to any authority. They end up in jail. (laughs) Spiritually, you end up in a place that rhymes with that and a lot worse if you don't learn to submit. It's a big deal. We have some tolerance towards carelessness, even though it aggravates me. I'm OCD. My son gets that from me. But it's aggravating, but we try to have some grace towards carelessness, even though we correct that. But there's a problem with rebellion. That's a big deal. That's a heart problem. Well, we aren't. We decided early on we weren't going to be counters. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's your judgment. But we decided you don't get three and a quarter, three and a half, four and a half, five and a half to keep rebelling and refusing to submit and do the right thing and flirting with boundaries. Partial submission is not submission. We get 100% compliance and we tell the boys, watch a movie on the way to Oklahoma. You look back there, Tyson has his headphones on for six hours, fully compliant. What about when it's time to pick up the toys? That's when we submit. When my will doesn't match thy will, that's where the rubber meets the road. I want to tell you, if you want to live the spiritual life, if you want this fruit to explode in your life, submit to God even when it hurts, even when it's hard, and especially when it's hard. And that's when you'll live the spiritual life. And then he says, resist. Doesn't that contradict? We submit and we resist at the same time. Well, it's a question of who do we submit to and who do we resist? Paul said you're going to be a slave to somebody. It's our choice. Submit to God and resist the devil. We don't want to do that either. We don't want to resist our feelings and emotions and our temptations and the desires of the world. It's a military term. It means to dig in, take your stand, fight the good fight of faith, put on the armor of God, the flesh versus the spirit. We talked about the boys digging in. That's exactly what we're talking about. Resist the devil. And when we do that, we're promised that he will flee from us. And that allow us to draw near to God. James 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And to do that, that means that I have to often change my focus. To draw near to God means that in the process, I'm drawing away from things and activities and relationships that aren't close to God. And that's the problem. We're too busy getting involved and drawing near things that aren't close to God that are preventing us and pulling us away from being close to God. Are you close to God this morning? Are you? How do you know? What's the objective evidence of that? I asked the question last time, are you saved? Similar question, you know what? There's similar responses. You ask people that, Christians that, you'll get almost the same response. I just feel in my heart. I just feel in my heart. I just feel in my heart. What does that mean? 
Bible doesn't say anything about feeling the Spirit or feeling in your heart you're close to God. Jacob felt that God wasn't close to him, and he was. Samson felt that God was close to him, and he wasn't. Our feelings are unreliable. The Bible doesn't say anything about feeling in your heart. You know what we see here? Humble yourself. Submit. Resist. Draw near. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Something that we do, not something that we feel. James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. It's not something that we feel, it's something that we do. That's proof of our fidelity. That's what Jesus said frequently. James four, or John 14, verse 23, an example of that. He said, if any man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. How do we know that we're abiding and living with and close to God and with Jesus? If, conditional, you keep my words. You've got to submit. Submissive obedience to God is proof that we are close to God, not our feelings. He says you've got to cleanse your hands. And that reminds me of the Levitical priesthood, of the priest having to clean up before they approach God in the tabernacle. God can't be in the presence of sin. You've got to put evil away from you. Paul talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man to be in the presence of God. Hands being symbolic of the instruments by which our deeds are done. He said, you've got to clean up. How? Well, you've got to purify your heart. Because the heart determines what the hands are doing. The heart is what determines and dictates the behavior. Both the source and the means have to be purified. And then we can draw near and we can draw close to God. We've got to focus. He said, don't be double-minded. That's maybe a nicer word than the nasty word, hypocrite. Jesus said, you can't have it both ways. You can't serve God and mammon. No man can serve two masters. You can't be half all in. What makes you less intelligent? Smoking cannabis? Losing a night's sleep? Or trying to send an email while talking on the phone? Research shows it's the latter. It's being distracted. But you didn't see that question coming this morning from me. But research shows it's distractions that drop your IQ by 10 to 15 points. Somebody says, oh, I've got plenty to spare. That doesn't sound like much. That'll take you from an average adult male to an 8-year-old child because you're not focused. Research shows that highly intelligent people are able to block out background noise that's not essential, the big objects, and focus on the small objects in the foreground. I submit to you that same concept applies spiritually to highly mature and intelligent Christians. We've got to weed out the distractions, and we've got to focus. You ever watch somebody trying to walk while texting, right? It's like there's a fire hydrant lurking at every step. They're in the marching band, right? They sense there's danger because they're not paying attention, and they change their gait. They end up walking into plants, walking into walls. You have humorous videos of people walking into fountains because they weren't paying attention. What about when people walk out into traffic? Is that funny? What about distracted driving? Is that funny? Not only affects me, it affects other people. And when I'm not focused at home, when I'm not focused in the church, when I'm not focused while out in the world, it affects me and it affects those that I influence, those that I impact. And the consequences are deadly. Think about a, being in a wedding, and friend's wedding, and we, were doing, we had a rehearsal, and we were in this big church building, and there was a baptistry on stage. And his aunt was taking pictures, and the next thing we know, we heard a splash. 
And I've never seen somebody get out of a baptistry faster than that lady. I felt so bad for her. She was so embarrassed, and her family felt bad for her too until they discovered she was actually okay, and then she never heard the end of it. Her comments about her getting rebaptized and things like that. That's what happens. We fall in. We always think that we're more focused than we actually are, don't we? You focused spiritually? Study, prayer, coming to church, evangelizing, ministering? Really? Daily? Take up your cross daily? Are we focused? I always think, you know, I'm a high-functioning multitasker. Just don't ask my wife. Right? Trying to have a meaningful conversation with me. I have the game on TV. I'm working on a sermon while playing with the kids. And I think, oh, man, I'm filling her love bank by having meaningful conversation. Sometimes we need to turn things off. We need to disconnect. And we need to make time. We need to get rid of the junk and the background music. And we need to focus on the needful things. As Jesus told Martha, we've got to live deliberately and intentionally if we're going to live the spiritual life. And I believe, again, the heart and the mind is the key in all of that. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, by the will of God. We've got to change our way of thinking, which is going to change the way of our doing. The problem is when we're producing the works of the flesh in our life, it's because our mind has been in submission to our body. And we've got to flip that. Romans chapter 7, this internal conflict, we've got to flip that. Kelsey and I watched the show Biggest Loser after we got married. I don't know why, for, for a while. But there were amazing transformations over time. You know what the correlation was? The amount you put in. The amount of exercise, I submit to you, same concept spiritually. You want to transform spiritually? You want more fruit? I submit to you, it's correlated to spiritual exercise. Romans 8, verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. ESV says, Set the mind on the Spirit, our mind and our attitude. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, We're not in a carnal battle. We're in a spiritual battle. And that battle is fought in your heart and your mind. You've got to destroy the strongholds and identify the strongholds in your life. Those philosophies and worldviews and ways of thinking that conflict and aren't compatible with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you've got to bring every thought captive to Christ. That's how you win the battle. That's how you win the spiritual life. If you know you need to be living a life that's more spiritual this morning and less physical, then I would submit to you, you need to start by renewing your mind, by spending more time in the Word of God and spiritual activities. And I want to tell you, there's enough in here and enough that you can be doing in the kingdom of God to keep your mind occupied for a lifetime and more. That'll purify your heart, purify your mind, which will cleanse your hands. And then notice what he says next, verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy to heaviness. Later he goes on to say, you make all these plans and you presume to have all this time. And he said, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What's your life? It's like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And all such rejoicing is evil. I'll tell you, that's the problem. That's today, right? It's always been the problem. Second Peter 3, you mock. Too casual. We mock and we scoff at God and at the second coming and at sin. We make light of it. We find amusement and entertainment in things that promote adultery and tearing up of homes and drunkenness and selfishness and pride. Not only are we tolerant of it, we laugh about it. We think it's funny. Conversations at the water cooler that are inappropriate. Or people telling stories about how they went out and painted the town red and how dumb somebody acted because they were drunk. And we think that's so funny. It's not funny. 
We don't take anything serious anymore. Nothing's holy. Everything's common and profane. That's the opposite of holiness. Everything's common today. We say, oh, it's okay. Now, I'm all about encouraging, and I'm a fairly non-confrontational person. Forgiveness and encouragement, I I get that aspect of it. But when we tell people, we lower the bar for ourselves, for the church, for our children. Say, oh, everybody's doing it. Everybody's fornicating. Everybody's looking at pornography. Everybody's going out and getting drunk. Everybody's lying. Everybody's being selfish. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Think that's how God looks at sin? His holiness and righteousness? You think Jesus thought it wasn't a big deal? Put him on the cross. Think God's laughing at your dirty joke? At your lack of self-control? Think it's funny? James says, don't rejoice, don't laugh if your heart and your hands are stained with sin. It's not funny. And he said, don't be frivolous about your life. You have one life and the time is running out. It is so short. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And you need to be serious about that. Sadly, often those in most need of repentance are the ones who are least concerned about it. But James says, one day the party's over. Going back to Galatians chapter 6, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. This fundamental principle of reproduction, you reap what you sow. When an orange tree, you want oranges, you got to sow an orange seed. You reap what you sow. And sadly, so many people want the benefits of everlasting life, want the benefits of living the spiritual life. But they're seeking it through the works of the flesh and through the things of the world. We have this battle between our inward spiritual man, this outward animalistic man. Who's going to win control, the flesh or the spirit? Are we going to produce the works of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit? Who's going to win? story about a man who had two dogs that he would fight, and he always could predict which dog was going to win the fight. Another man asked him, how do you know that? He said, it's very simple. Whichever dog I fed that day is going to win the fight. And we have this conflict, and we have this question between, is our flesh going to win or our spirit? Are we going to produce the works of the flesh, or are we going to live the spiritual life? Who's going to win? Submit to you, whoever you feed, whichever one you feed the most is going to win the fight. Feed your soul. Feed your spirit, and you'll live the spiritual life. And if you live the spiritual life, you'll reap life everlasting. As we offer an invitation, I want you to notice what Jesus said in John 15, this idea that, well, we can produce the fruit of the Spirit without being a Christian. You might can have some of these qualities and characteristics, but consistently, long-term, you can't live the spiritual life without Jesus. He said, without me, you can do nothing. You have to be cleansed through the Word. You have to bear not just some fruit, but much fruit to be my disciples. You have to abide in me to be fruitful. At the end of the day, I've, we've committed the works of the flesh, and that has to be dealt with. The only fix, the only solution to that is the blood of Jesus. We have to abide in Christ. The question becomes, how do I get into Christ? Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Talk about last time, believe, repent, and be baptized, and you can begin this spiritual life. Crucify the old man, sins washed away in the blood of Jesus, resurrected to walk with him in newness of life. If you need to do that this morning, we'd encourage you to do that. Maybe you're here and you've made that choice previously. Maybe you need to renew 
that commitment. Maybe you need to refocus, recalibrate. Draw near to God. How? By cleansing your hands, by purifying and changing your mind and your heart. Maybe you need to put up more resistance. Maybe you need to be more submissive. And that all starts with humility. Saying, I've got a problem and I need help. That's where the resolution begins. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. If we can help you in that, we're ready to do that. If you need help getting into Christ, staying in Christ, abiding in Christ, if you need help beginning the spiritual life or continuing the spiritual life, we offer the invitation of the Lord. Please come and have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.